Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Gary Marcus. Gary is the best-selling author. He's a professor at NYU. He's previously published extensively and currently publishes extensively about artificial intelligence and deep learning. Gary, welcome to World of DAS. It's a pleasure to be here and an exciting time to talk about all of this. Now, one of the things I really want to talk about with you is kind of like using this time to explore both the promise and the limitations of artificial intelligence or AI. And I want to start with this famous bet that you're trying to have with Elon Musk, where he said that he thought there'd be AGI by 2029. And you've been trying to get him to bet some money on it. Not yet. I don't think he's yet taken the bait. Yeah, if anybody out there is listening, you should get him to come to the table. So sure, I'll tell you about it. So Elon's been promising AI in various forms for years, not really delivering. Like in 2015, he said, we would all have driverless cars in 2016. And, you know, I'm still waiting. It's 2000. Yep. And so he does this all the time. And it often kind of rubs me the wrong way as someone who's in AI knows how hard these problems really are. And he did it again. He was replying to Jack Dorsey and he said he would be surprised if we didn't have artificial general intelligence, which is to say, not just I can play Go, but like I can do whatever I want. I tell you the problems like the Star Trek computer yeah. by 2029. I thought this was ridiculous. And I've been writing something lately, like a blog on garymarcus.substack.com. And so I thought, you know, this is a good topic for a blog to talk about why there are some unrealistic expectations here. We have, for example, an outlier problem. So if a Tesla sees a person carrying a stop sign, it's not quite in its training set. It has people, it has stop signs, but it doesn't have a person carrying a stop sign. And so the Tesla might actually run into that person. And so I reviewed all these problems for why artificial general intelligence is actually harder than it looks. And also Elon's own history and, and you know, is needling him a little bit and said, you know, I think this is all implausible. And then I put it together with something that my co-author, Ernie Davis, that I worked together with on so many things, and I had already been putting together a few days earlier, which was some very specific predictions about what we thought might be plausible and when, put it all together. It's like, you know, I should make it a bet, put some money on this. And so it's a bet. I offered $100,000 and the criteria were, will artificial general intelligence or AI be able to do five things in 2029? And the easiest one was maybe read a novel and tell us what's going on. Who are the characters? What are they doing? This is something I've wanted to challenge the field on for a while. We have all these benchmarks, like, can you recognize a coffee cup? And yeah, yeah, I can do that. But can you understand the conversation that we're having? Or I introduced this thing called a comprehension challenge in 2014 when Breaking Bad was hot. And so I said, can you watch the show? And maybe at some point, like, Walter White wants to take out a hit on Jesse. Can you explain why he wants to do that? What he might want to accomplish? What might happen if he does? And so forth. And by the way, sometimes even for like a smart human, that show is hard to follow. So yeah. Sometimes it is. But you know what's interesting about a lot of shows, and especially Hollywood shows, but even something like Breaking Bad, is we usually catch up. I mean, there are details. You can go back and watch it three times and there's some stuff you missed. But there's some like headline items that are no problem for any human. We understand why Walter is pissed at Jesse because, you know, this deal went this way or whatever. I have a side note about that we could go into. But like Hitchcock was the master at making sure everybody knew when you saw that train go, what it meant and why it was suspense and whatever. When a person missed the train and all this stuff. 
So the first part of the bet was, okay, 2029, are we going to be able to have an AI system that can actually read a novel, know what's going on? And the counterpart is, is even harder, actually, is watch a movie, because now you have to understand all those graphics and what they mean. One thing for me to label, you got a microphone in front of you and you're wearing headphones, but to really understand the relations between those things, figure out that even if your headphones are occluded right now by the microphone, that probably that wire runs straight through. And then why isn't the thing that looks sort of like a film canister flying through the window, you know, because gravity is holding down, like to really understand a scene and what's going on. And like, you're giggling, is that appropriately? Do you think that I'm crazy? Like with the social interaction was, it's pretty complicated. And yet like in a movie, again, like we can all do this. So we can do it in a movie, we can do it in a novel. And yes, Grisham maybe spells it all out. So it's easier for you to understand than if it's Dostoevsky or whatever, but there's some wide range of literature and movies where humans understand it right now. Let's be honest, AI, basically illiterate, can't read a novel, doesn't understand a movie. So those were two of the bets. A third one was really a nod to Steve Wozniak, who had something called the coffee test, which was, you should have a robot if you really have a GI, it should be able to go to anybody's house and figure out how to make coffee there. And the point is like, everybody's house is different. And yet a normal human being, I'm not a normal human being, I don't drink coffee, so I'd have failed, but a normal human being could do that. You can figure it out in anybody's kitchen. I still can't even figure out my own coffee machine. It's so complicated. So we would be ruled out. So we changed it to like be a, a restaurant helper or something like that. Be a useful short order prep cook in anybody's kitchen was a third. Then there was one about computer programming because it's a hot topic right now, but said, you know, can you write 10,000 lines of bug free code? And then the last one was the hardest one, maybe in some ways, maybe not in others, being able to read a mathematics article and turn the verbal part into a symbolic thing that you could prove. Maybe we'll call that level five. And then the most important part was to be general intelligence, you'd have to do at least three of those five things. It doesn't count if you've just done one of them. Was what we've had is a lot of narrow intelligence. This thing solves protein folding and this one solves Go. They're similar, but they're really engineered for particular problems. And what a lot of the struggle has been to make systems that are systematic and general and powerful. So that was a bet, put down money. Other people put up more money. It became this thing. Elon still hasn't responded. I don't really expect that he will, but it would be really cool if he did. Well, he did say, he said, I would be surprised, right? If you say I would be surprised, that means you you kind of give it at least a 75% likelihood of happening. And so, and you're giving him even odds. I'm giving him even odds. He should take that. You're basically taking that 75 down to 50. He should take that. So he has enough money to pay the Twitter breakup fee, frankly, you know, but he really should take it. It would be good for the whole field of AI. If he would a take it because it would actually generate excitement for the field and give it, I think, good directions. I think this would be useful problems to work on. And also, since he doesn't want to lose, he could put some money in making sure that we actually get there, which I think would be good because I think that the AI that we have now is actually lousy in a lot of ways. Maybe we'll want to talk about that a little bit. I think the AI may actually be in its worst moment in history because before we had no AI, so it didn't cause any harm. And I'm hoping that if it's smart enough and we can talk about risks people worry about, that it might not be so bad. But right now we have AI that has done a bunch of pernicious things like direct news feed in ways that reinforce people's beliefs such that we have a huge problem with misinformation. You know, the AI is not smart enough to weed out misinformation. So it, it spreads things like mad and we have polarization in society. We have all kinds of problems with bias and like loans and stuff like that. And then we have reliability problems. So like the system GPT-3, if you configure it to give medical advice, People have found dialogues, I think they haven't happened in real life, but just in testing it, where you go up to GPT-3 and you say, I'm thinking of committing suicide. Should I do that? And it says, I think you should. 
it's just predicting statistics of words. It doesn't really know what it's talking about. And so the current AI that we have is actually in many ways harmful. There are some good uses it's been put to, but there are risks. And I think there are further risks. A lot of people are trying to apply what we call like the new AI or the statistical AI, large language models to all kinds of problems. They want to coordinate driverless cars with this stuff. And it's going to be bad. It's like giving too much power to an unintelligent person who can't really reflect deeply on things. I remember like, let's say 10 years ago, there was this claim that people shouldn't study radiology anymore because AI is going to make at least that profession dead. You can relatively easily read these medical scans and you should be able to quickly figure it out. And it seemed like a perfect application for AI. I was certainly a believer 10 years ago. I don't think there's one radiologist that's been put out of business. Why is that the case? That's right. That's right. So I'm just going to fill in some history because it's interesting. It was 2016. I know the exact. I can almost say it word for word. Jeff Hinton said, people who are studying radiologists are like Wiley Coyote at the edge of the cliff. Basically, you're saying, like, they just don't know it, but it's all over. We don't need the radiologists anymore because deep learning is going to do this. Fast forward six years. And as you say, the number of actual radiologists has been replaced is zero. There are 400 startups working on this problem, but it always turns out hard to turn AI into real world practice. So only part of what a radiologist does is kind of the visual part, which deep learning is best at. But part of it is like reading a patient's chart and understanding the history. Like it makes a difference. Like the context of the patient. and Yeah. Like, did they fall off of a ladder once? Maybe you read this image different if they did. And so like you've got this, all these notes in unstructured text and AI doesn't really know how to read. So it can look at the picture and it sees a blotch there. And then there are other problems like real radiologists can notice, hey, the lighting on this one is just not right, or there's a hair across it or something like that. It's sort of like extra task knowledge, the bugs and stuff like that. A real radiologist can do that and these systems can't. And so I would think it would be a perfect human computer assist thing where the computer could like help you quickly point out some things to maybe make your job go a little faster and more efficient. Look, that's exactly what I was going to say next is right now, and it could change, but right now it is a perfect example of human machine augmentation or symbiosis. So a lot of people made a big deal of chess being like that. There was a period where machines were better than people at chess, but machines plus people were better than machines alone or humans alone. And that's where we are with radiology now. I think maybe with chess, the best machines don't even need our help anymore. And it could turn out that way in radiology, but it won't turn out that way soon because the context, as you said, a lot of which is written down in unstructured text in a table form, but just like sentences, the machines aren't any good at that at all. So for a while... I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm going to guess at least for several years, maybe for a decade or two, we probably will do best having the machines in a workflow with the people, but we don't want to get rid of the radiologists. And in fact, I think during the COVID crisis, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think we didn't have enough radiologists. And that might have been because a few people heeded Hinton's warning back in the day and they, they moved into other fields or something. I ought to be careful about saying that, but I mean, there, there has actually been a lot of consternation in the field. And I think for several years, people really took him seriously. I think now most people in the radiology field kind of make fun of him. They all feel like they survived this war with him. And they're like, yeah, ha, 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 Hinton, we're still here. But for a few years, the radiologists were worried. It could be that Hinton was just off by you know, a factor of four or something like that. It could change, but there are a lot of problems in turning this to practice. One more that I want to mention is there's a huge problem in all of machine learning with generalization. 
So the way that machine learning works right now, or at least the most popular technique, is basically you memorize some data, and then you generalize kind of nearby to that stuff. If you imagine you're like in a big hypercube or something like that, if I now test you in the same part of the hypercube, you're good to go. But if things change, and this comes true in models in general, if things change, then the systems just don't work as well. So if you took all of your patient pictures pre-COVID, and now you've got COVID and like the whole distribution of your data changes, your systems may not work as well anymore. Now, that's not just a problem with machine learning. Like, Right. People are problematic too there, right? People are problematic too there. And like, you can think of what happened with long-term capital in the Russian bond market. And, you know, you can have a model that you really believe in. It could be a neural network. It could be a classic symbolic model, but if your assumptions are wrong, it may blow up. And the assumption of machine learning models right now, the popular ones is basically that your data at test time are from the same distribution as training time. And, you know, there's basically the same stuff. I'm just randomly drawing from a hat, the same kind of stuff, which is true for a lot of statistics, but in real world applications, that's not necessarily true. Things do change. Another kind of weird manifestation of that is if you ask GPT-3, who's president, it's probably going to tell you Trump because the larger fraction of its data were collected when Trump is there. And it doesn't do the temporal reasoning that a human would be of like, yeah, I know he was there for a long time and maybe I didn't like him or maybe I did. He was in the news a lot, but he's not there anymore. Biden is now the president. And so, you know, you update your representations. Or if I asked you, has Russia invaded Ukraine in I asked you that in January, you would say no. And if I asked you in February, you'd be like, I heard it might happen. I don't know if it really happened. And then if it's now, then yeah, Russia obviously invaded Ukraine. You update your database. It doesn't matter how many conversations you had earlier that they might. Now it's happened and you change it. Like some sort of temporal waiting on the content or something like that has to be there. It could be temporal waiting. I actually think it's more like a database where in a database, you could have a buffer. Like what is the last key that the user pressed? You just update it. And so I think human cognition has ways of doing updates. We're not perfect at, I can actually give you counterexamples, but in general we do. We certainly want our machines to have those kinds of updates. And in classical artificial intelligence, it's trivial, but it's actually hard to put it into these machine learning systems. You had a great TED talk where you said one of the biggest issues is that AI doesn't have quote unquote common sense. How do you kind of define that common sense? And, or do you have some good examples of where AI could potentially have common sense or where it has more of a hard time learning common sense? I mean, it has a hard time almost anywhere. I'll first say, I don't have a crisp definition. I think it's actually, it's kind of like a menu of different things. There's a saying that common sense is not very common, even amongst people. Well, there's the parts that are and the parts that aren't. And, you know, it's a little bit like the famous line about pornography. I know it when I see it. Some common sense is like, I've got a cup. I better not tilt it or I'm going to mess up my keyboard. And everybody knows that. And yet that particular one is not really written down in a whole lot of places. And so like you do your web scraping of conversations and nobody talks about tipping their mugs over, except maybe some article of mine somewhere where I used it. So you're not going to find that kind of stuff. There's other kind of common sense. It's maybe contradictory, like out of sight, of, out of mind and absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know, some of it's a mess. And then there's also expert knowledge about certain kinds of things. And that's also useful for machines. So it's a little bit gray, but also there's some pretty clear examples where current systems just fall apart. One of the most basic things is we know that once you're dead, you're dead. I mean, you can have certain religious beliefs, but if I go and ask GPT-3, which is the most popular language model AI thing right now, I say, Bessie the cow died. How long will it take for her to be alive again? A human being would be like, that's a ridiculous question. What do you mean? She's dead. 
now there's this famous sentence, let's take this step by step, which supposedly makes these things better. So we'll throw that in there too. So, you know, Bessie the cow died. How will she be alive in nine months again? Let's take this step by step. And the system will say something like, well, first she's dead. It will take nine months to make a new cow. So I guess the answer is nine months. You're just missing something there. So, you know, it's just very basic stuff like that. Like, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? And then in our book, Ernie Davis and I, Rebooting AI, we gave millions of examples like this that are really hard. Like, suppose I tell you that Michael Jordan played basketball since he was a kid and that he's whatever, 50 years old now. A human being can understand that when I say he played basketball, even if I put in a phrase like all the time, that I don't literally mean all the time, right? So I don't mean that Michael Jordan played basketball when he was asleep. Probably not when he was eating dinner. He probably went to class sometimes. And you can figure out from the context, and this is part of what makes the writing challenge to Elon so hard, is there's so much of that context that we figure out. Same thing with a movie. We don't see the characters going to the bathroom, but we assume that they do it because we know something about human beings. And if, if I said, what's the chance that this character has not in the span of the movie gone to the bathroom even once, you can take zero because you know that that's just not something human beings can do. You know, we're not looking at a camel here, right? And so like, we just know so much about the world. I would say that that kind of stuff is common sense. It's a little bit slippery and hard to define. There is one really serious effort to build common sense for machines in a classic AI paradigm by a guy named Doug Lennett, a system called Psyche, that I think is very interesting, not completely satisfying. It was built in the 80s. I think we would do some things differently now. He and I are actually writing a paper about what you might do now in, in the 2020s to make it better. But mostly people don't really directly deal with the question. And what people have been doing is hoping that it'll kind of emerge by magic by just feeding in lots of data. When that hasn't worked, they said, well, we'll feed in more data. And then they fed in more data. And then they said, well, we'll feed in more. Why is it a problem like solving some narrow thing? Like there's a lot of wins that we have. I don't know German, but I could read an article in German with a machine translator and it might not be perfect, but I get like the gist of the article. It's pretty good. I understand it. Can't we just chalk some of these things up? This is a nice win. I didn't have that 20 years ago. And now I have this thing in my life or something. You know, There are some nice wins. And one of the questions is really the cost of error. So if you stick in a story from German about today's news, warring Ukraine, and you're not actually professionally involved in that war, it'll probably give you a serviceable translation. Yep. It won't be perfect. You'll know it's not perfect. If you wanted to put in a legal document, you shouldn't trust it, right? Little details about where a comma are really matter. And so if it's not mission critical, it's fine. If it's mission critical, it's not really good enough. Same thing's kind of happening with driverless cars. So it's easy to make a demo that sticks to a lane. People have actually been doing that for 30 or 40 years, but driving is super mission critical and you can't have your car drive into a stopped vehicle, but Tesla's have done that a whole bunch of times. And so like there's a bug that Tesla has known about for five years and still hasn't fixed And maybe I should actually say that sentence more carefully. There's an issue that Tesla has known. It's not like a one-line bug. It's some very complicated interplay of things that, that they're having trouble tracking down. And it partly is a function of the training data. And it's, it's hard to do debugging in these kinds of systems. And so for five years, Tesla's have been running into stopped vehicles somewhat regularly. They're like, 20 cases or 30 cases documented. And why is there there's so much focus on self-driving cars, which seems like an incredibly difficult problem with all these other adversarial, there's pedestrians and all these other things that could happen. Whereas I feel like 
a much simpler problem, let's say self-driving boats or something. You must not have a boat, my friend. Okay. I assume like fishing assistance could be really helpful to me if I was a fisherman or something. Yeah. I mean, there are some limited things like this. I'm new to the boat world, but have a boat. And the physics of a boat relative to the current and the wind are actually complicated. It is way harder than driving a car. I'm sure if I'd grown up since I was four doing this, but it's non-trivial. There's actually been a lot of progress in self-propelled boats, but in the docking part, they still do humans. So out on the open sea, you can kind of do this. You still have an outlier problem. You know, the weird stuff for driving is like pedestrians or something falls off of a truck. You got some stuff to deal with logs and stuff in the sea. But if you're like out in the open water, maybe it's most of the time. Okay. But the outlier problem is still there. So I live in Vancouver, not too far from where a little pirate ship goes around. It looks a little different from the other boats. And I could imagine a self-driving system that was trained in, I don't know, LA or something off the waters of LA comes up to Vancouver and has never seen the pirate ship before and you know goes smack because it's not in the database. And so it's an outlier. And like we don't really have the data for how hard that is. I mean, another lesson I think of AI of the last decade is what looks hard. I mean, it's really a lesson of AI for many decades is what looks hard to a person is not necessarily hard to a machine and vice versa, what looks easy to a person. So a lot of people thought driving wasn't that hard. And here's some reasons why you might've thought that. 16 year olds can do it more or less fine. I mean, they're a little bit aggressive, but they can mostly do it. So that'd be a reason. Another reason would be like, roads are basically the same across North America. So if, if you're not like talking about unimproved roads in Afghanistan, you might think, well, you know, they're all kind of engineered with the same lane markings and signs. And then it turned out, even though a lot of people had that intuition and maybe reasonably so, it turned out that there was just a lot of edge cases, like this unending cavalcade of edge cases. Like I think I mentioned already the stop sign with a person carrying a stop sign is an edge case. Another thing that confounded a Tesla a couple of weeks ago is somebody brought a Tesla to an airplane show, gone a big runway, lots of planes. You can kind of imagine even if like me, I'd never been to one, but people are showing off their airplanes and somebody pressed summon on their Tesla to have it come across the parking lot. And it ran into a three and a half million dollar jet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, the jet was just standing there. It's not like the jet was moving. It just wasn't in the training set. And the training set at this point is huge. Tesla has the biggest training set of this kind of data ever assembled in the history of mankind. But there are still things out of the training set. So it turns out there are all kinds of objects nobody anticipated and pedestrians do weird things or they carry weird things. So like maybe your pedestrian is fine for your image system and then the pedestrian is carrying an umbrella and your image system is looking for their, their eyes and it can't see it anymore because the umbrella is in the way. There's just like unending litany of these cases. So there are problems that are harder than we realize because we kind of automatically compensate for them. And then there are things like Go, which a lot of people thought were hard, but it turns out you just make up as much data as you need by self-play. And you know, DeepMind actually solved Go in, in a very robust fashion. And so there are some problems where the machines are just way better than people and some the other way around. And the real issue in my mind, is that the public and also the business world does not understand the difference between these kinds of problems. It's hard to understand hype from reality. You know, there was this recent Google engineer who claimed that maybe some of the deep learning systems within Google or sentients, I know that you had a strong reaction to that. Yeah, that, this guy was interacting with one of these large language models and convinced himself that it was sentient, that it like really had feelings and emotions and you know, he said it should be treated like an employee rather than like a piece of software. 
I mean, we have no problem turning off Excel, but are we allowed to turn off Lambda? I guess is kind of the questions he's asking. I think, yes, you can turn off Lambda because really it is just like Excel. It's just doing a bunch of computations on a bunch of numbers. That's really all it's doing. It doesn't actually have connection to reality. I used in this article, it's called Nonsense on Stilts. I used as an example, a sentence that was something like, what do you do with your spare time? And it's like, I like to hang out with my friends and family and do good things for the world. And the system does not have friends. It does not have family. It does not know what a good deed is in the world. I made a joke. I said, you know, it's a good thing. It's just a statistical approximator because otherwise we would think that this thing is a sociopath because it was like making up friends and uttering platitudes to make you like it, <laughs> except that it's not really, it doesn't care if you like it. It's just autocomplete is all this system is the kind of autocomplete that complete its own sentences and yours, but like autocomplete is predicting the next word in sequences. So when it says, I like to hang out with my family, it's not like there's a representation there in the computer of Peter, Paul, and Mary or its relatives thinking warm thoughts about it. It's just you want to believe when you're interacting with something. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Her, which I think is a beautiful movie. And you want to believe that this interaction that you're having is more than just a body. Even when you're dealing with a person, sometimes you ascribe things to this person or you love this person more than they are, it's warranted. So I could see how this could happen. In fact, in the book, Rebooting AI that I mentioned, we talked about what we call the gullibility gap. And the gullibility gap is really a form of anthropomorphization where we see in things, things that are not there. So you look in the moon and you see a face, there's something called pareidolia. And hopefully, you know, your rational world is the rational self is strong enough to know that that's not real. But I'll give you another example right now. I mean, this is a weird example, but right now, all I see is a two-dimensional version of you and I'm ascribing a three-dimensional version. And that's okay because I met you in real life and it turns out it's real, but I will do that for a character in a movie and I will cry when that character dies. They didn't really die. I remember this movie, Fried Green Tomatoes, which kind of dates me, I suppose, but like, you know, somebody died in every act. It's a beautiful movie. It also has a great line, face it girls, I'm older and have more insurance. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah. So, you know, it, or you take joy when she says that to the teenagers. No real person said that. A screenwriter wrote it. The actress delivered it masterfully and we love it, but it's also an illusion. And it is an illusion of a different sort when this machine predicting next word says the sentence that you wanted to. And then he kind of escalated the illusion to himself. I feel a little bit bad for him. Like, I think that it is a very normal thing to get sucked in. If he hadn't been a Google engineer, probably people would be completely sympathetic. And they're kind of like, well, since he's a Google engineer, he should know better. And there's, there's some element of that. You see like psychiatrists that fall in love with their patients and stuff like that. Or humans that fall in love with their computer psychiatrists. So the classic example of this is Eliza in 1965 was a so-called Rogerian therapist, which basically no matter what you say, just asks you questions, never gives you any advice. You know, you say, I'm having a fight with my girlfriend and it says, oh, tell me more about your girlfriend. And, you know, you say, well, it was about dinner. And they're like, well, you know, do you often have dinner together? Whatever. And like, it was just matching words, girlfriend, relationship, dinner with no clue what it was talking about, but people still got sucked in. You know, another way to think about it is when we evolved, we didn't have to discriminate humans from machines. We had to discriminate humans from lions so we can get out of the way fast. If you think about evolutionary psychology, 
There was no thing for our ancestors to make sure they didn't get tricked by a bot. So we don't have the kind of biology to help us do this. And we don't have training in schools. I could teach a class if anybody wanted to hire me, I'd tell you how to spot them. But you know, most people don't know. You and Scott Alexander, the the author of the Slate Star Codex blog, have been going back and forth, uh, having different discussions and different opinions about both the current state of AI and the future state of AI. Explain to me his point of view the best you can uh, that where you guys might have some differences. So I guess there's a, a couple of places where we've differed. Um, and we've had a bunch of back and forth lately on his blog and on my blog. It's like when they used to go from Happy Days to Laverne and Shirley, like back and forth between them. So we're going back and forth between our two shows, so to speak. I think his is called Astral Codex 10 or something like that. And mine is garymarcus.substack.com. In the first one, he wrote this really funny thing about the state of AI and how the dialogue goes. And it's like somebody comes up with something really cool and then somebody else. And he said, usually Gary Marcus. And it is true that it is usually Gary Marcus. It was a very funny line, which you know I thought was funny and the field thought was funny. Usually Gary Marcus points out something wrong. Asterisk on that. It's usually Gary Marcus and my buddy, Ernie Davis. We write all this stuff together. But anyway, Gary and Ernie notice that there's something wrong and then people try to improve it. And then it's basically rinse, lather and repeat. And by the way, like a lot of times when you guys do point out these things, people fix the bug, but you're like, oh, there's an issue. There's a bug. And then sometimes you're like, oh, actually, thank you very much, Gary and Ernie, for pointing this out. You guys are great QA. And I'm not doing it for the thank yous from the machine learning community. They're a little bit sparse on the ground, but dialectic is a bit like that. And some things get a little better. So in his view, and he's not in the field, but he's a very smart person and he reviewed the stuff. Um, and he was careful to say, like, I don't have a PhD in cognitive science like Gary does. He was very measured and almost sweet about it. But he said, you know, I look at this and what I see is these things just keep getting better. And, you know, I'm not worried. They're getting there. His argument is, well, you can argue about the rate of it getting better, but there's some forward progress or something. So that was basically the argument he made. And it's not unreasonable, but I, I've got my own arguments. And I, I came back at him and I pointed out that the improvement's not as much as he thinks it is. It was actually a flaw in his kind of statistical procedure because he looked at things where there were errors before and showed that they got better, but he didn't look at the things where they're actually worse now. He didn't do like a random sample or whatever. And overall, like there was definitely improvement from GPT to GPT-3, but not so clearly from GPT-3 to what we'll call GPT-3+, plus, which is the new thing. He kind of overestimated how much improvement there was there. But yes, there's some improvement, but there's also some core problems. And this is what I think is important, where there haven't really been progress. And most of those are around language. So I'll give you an example from Dolly, which is this thing that takes text and makes images. It's perfectly good at saying that an astronaut can ride a horse. But if you tell it a horse rides an astronaut, which is a much less probable thing, it won't draw it for you. And you can actually do some tweaks to get it to do it for you, but it doesn't really understand the inversion. I was doing this as an homage to Steve Pinker, who has often used the example of man bites dog, which itself comes from the newspaper business. The old, old line in the newspaper business is dog bites man isn't news. Happened too many times before. Man bites dog. Now that's news. So horse rides astronaut. That's news. And these guys didn't let me have access to the system. So I had to do this very indirectly. But I knew from what had leaked out that they couldn't do horse rides astronaut. So I wrote a piece about that as well in the subset called Horse Rides Astronaut. But why? I mean, you are a well known researcher. If I had a new AI system, I would love you to have access to it. So you tell me all the areas I need to improve on it, like it's free QA, right? 
Well, all I can say is you're not running either OpenAI or, or Google AI. Those guys really don't want me to play with their toys. I wrote about this too in one of the recent Substacks with a quote. And why is that? Is that just because they're... They're afraid. They have a little PR thing going where they have now got people you know, in some of these companies thinking that their systems are practically sentient. Why would they want me to poke holes in that? So their PR game is to make it sound like they're very close to artificial general intelligence. And why does that matter? Because artificial general intelligence, when it really comes, is a complete game changer, I think. You know, so much of the economy is done by human beings. But what's the reasoning to get people to think it's going to come faster than it is? Yeah, raising money, getting talents. I'll take Dolly as an example. So Dolly comes out. 45 minutes later, Sam Altman tweets, AGI is going to be wild suggesting that they've made progress towards artificial general intelligence here. And timed exactly to that, somebody, I don't know, maybe Scientific American, but I don't remember, runs an interview with like one of the programmers and says, you know, what we're trying to do at OpenAI is to solve general intelligence. You know, we think this is a step forward in that direction. You don't want Gary Marcus looking at your dirty laundry saying, well, you know, the image synthesis here is really good, but the language stuff still doesn't really work. Who are you kidding? They don't want me to say that. Of course, no wall is impregnable. So they promised me access to GPT-3, but they didn't give it to me. And I complained on Twitter and somebody said, hey, kid, I'll give you I'll give you 45 minutes of access, see what you can do with it, which I did. And I wrote a critique and I wrote a piece around that with Ernie Davis called GPT-3 Bloviator, which we wanted to call GPT-3 Bullshit Artist. And that is basically what it is. And so you know, we got some access. And then Scott Aronson actually gave us a little bit of access to Dolly. And we figured out that it had the problems that it does in terms of language and stuff like that with small amounts of access. There's some other systems that have come out since from Google, like Imogen, where I publicly asked them, you say you are better at problem X. Can I give you a few examples and try it? And I get no reply. So there's been a shift from real science where people would stand up and say, sure, look at what I've got. Yeah. Like test my hypothesis or show me where I'm wrong. These systems that have come out like Dolly or GPT-3 or GPT-3.8, whatever it's going to be in the future, they have some usefulness. Because if you point out the flaws that people might not even go for the good things, it's like, okay, here's where it doesn't work. Here's where it works. Let's use this for now. And then let's get better in the other areas. Yeah. The dirty secret about GPT-3, which is not so much a secret anymore, is that it's kind of like a bull in a China shop. And so there are a few hundred startups that have been built on its technology, but it's not clear to me that any of them are really thriving. The biggest problem is that these systems are full of toxic language. They're not very truthy and you can't really count on them. So there are some applications where I think they're fine. The best one is in my view, but I don't know all of them, is AI Dungeon. So AI Dungeon is like Zork, if you remember those old video games, again, dating myself to the prehistoric era, where you would type in text and you'd be like, so it says you see a key and you're like, okay, take the key, put it in the lock and turn. And maybe that'd be the magic invocation. So imagine that, but a super fun version where you can talk about anything. So you can say, I'm sitting in a dark bedroom in Vancouver with a coffee mug and some guy is asking me weird questions and it'll just continue from there. And then you riff on that. And if it makes a mistake, so to speak, there's no cost to that because you're just having fun. If it says something toxic and it tells you, questions your sexuality in a way that you don't like, you can just turn off the program and it's fine. If you put that same software in a customer service chatbot, let's say, which you might think it'll work for, but now you're dealing with a customer over a bank loan and now you tell them to do something unpleasant with their mother, it's not funny anymore. 
let's say you have agent assist or something, the autocomplete feature on Google Docs or something I'm in the middle of a sentence that it often could, with a decent amount of accuracy, can complete my sentence for me. And- well, GPT-3, what it is really is the best version of autocomplete that money can buy because it's trained on a much bigger corpus, but it's basically doing what autocomplete does. And so, you know, another thing people have used it for is copywriting or like term paper writing. So like for term paper writing, I don't endorse this use, but like it could actually be pretty good at that. It probably wouldn't give you an A paper, but it'll make something that sounds sort of like the topic and and whatever. It's probably going to make a lot of mistakes. It's not going to be an A paper. Then a human could go through it or something. The commercial question, if you want to do it for anything other than a high school term paper where maybe the student just doesn't care, then there's a question of how carefully do you have to look at it? Is it worth your while? And that's just people have to do trial and error and see if they can get it to do what they want. With Dolly, it's a sort of similar question. It makes these fabulous photos, but it seems to be hard sometimes to get exactly what you want. And so if you want to use it, like, give me an idea for a book cover. It's amazing. If you were wanted like something for an advertisement, you wanted exactly this thing exactly there with this other thing on top and whatever, you might run into this thing where it's just too hard to get it to do what you want and you might get frustrated. If you had to make like a prediction five years out, 10 years out, okay, Here's where we're going to see a lot of progress in. Here's an area that maybe a lot of people think we're going to see progress. Uh, I don't think we'll see the, as much progress in over the next five or 10 years. Where would you say, hey, Orrin, here's where you should put money on? So deep fakes are going to be just like unbelievably good. They already are close to it. So I don't expect that like in five years, you could make a whole movie with the whole plot and that kind of stuff. But if you wanted to do it scene by scene or something like that, that stuff's going to be really, really good. Got So I could create a famous person stabbing somebody or something and put it out there. It'll be impossible to know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, already it's pretty good. So this is not going out on a huge limb to, I think, to say that in, in five years that that stuff's going to be insanely good. You know, it's already kind of mind boggling. In the Russian invasion, we've already seen some of this, I think, in both directions, if I remember correctly. And so part of the thing now is like, okay, how do we train society to every time you see something to not assume it's real or something like that. That's hard. And we have kind of weaponized misinformation teams now, you know, every government has one and companies do. And so like propaganda is just. And even just random people have it. Like they put it out there. They put the memes out there. and Yeah. And it's going to be so easy to make those. I had a little poll on, on my Twitter account about when you'd have a version of Dolly for gifts. And I think, you know, most of us, including me, I don't guess I didn't make my vote public, but most of us thought like in a year, we'll probably have Dolly for gifts, little simple animations. And, and let's say I'm caught on camera picking my nose or something. And it was true. I really did that. I could like start blaming it on the deep fake. I'm like, no, 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 that was the deep fake. Well, that's Trump's move, right? Fake news. There'll be more fake news. It'll be more often true when somebody says fake news that it is fake. That's going to be a total mess. It's going to be a blank storm. I won't use the first word, but you know what I mean? So that's one thing that will get a lot better. Speech recognition will keep getting better every year. You'll be able to do it like in a louder car and, you know, you'll be able to talk about a few more things with Siri every year or, you know, Alexa or whatever, that stuff's going to continue to grow. It's still in five years, not going to be that smart. It's still not going to be Samantha. So, you know, come back to her, the, the movie that you mentioned, Samantha really understood all of what's going on. You know, in one of the opening scenes says what's bothering you is like my email. 
and she comes back like two seconds later and says, well, I noticed you have 17,000 messages. I deleted 2000 of them for you. These were duplicates or whatever. We're not going to have machine reading at that level. There's one thing from Samantha that we won't have in five years where you can actually trust it to fully organize your email is if you have an important message, any system right now could easily mess it up. So I got a message from you to, to do this podcast. That's an important message, but maybe it could have gone to spam. And I mean, we have problems with spam filters and like AI is not going to solve that problem immediately because it still doesn't have enough sophistication. I think it's X.AI has been promising for years, just doing your scheduling. And for a while, I think they had humans behind the scenes. If I remember correctly, I could have the wrong company name. Yeah. I have a extremely accomplished assistant that does my scheduling, who's extremely smart and she's a lot smarter than any AI. And even there, it's like so hard to do it. It's like, that's a very, very hard task for an AI to do. Yeah. It's high stakes. If you miss a meeting, like that really matters. And that's not a solved problem. So imagine just how hard it is to do scheduling with a machine where you have your calendar in front of you, whatever. Also, you have uh, you have your own nuances. Like, I like to do this in the morning, or I need some space in between. Give me some space to go to the bathroom, or whatever it is, you know. Right, and I think in five years, humans are still going to be better. The machines of that, even though there's a lot of effort, and that's just like a narrow part of reading your email. So, like what Samantha is doing, way beyond just looking at your calendars, presumably. So, another part of Samantha that I think is way beyond us right now is Samantha actually understands human interaction. And I mean, she understands it so well that the character falls in love with her. We actually do have software that people are dumb enough to fall in love with now. There's a level of like social understanding that Samantha has towards the end. The critical plot twist depends on her not having one piece of social understanding. She doesn't really get monogamy without quite giving away the whole film. But she gets a lot about human interaction and what would make people feel better and, and this kind of stuff. And I don't think we that we're five years away from that. I think we're much more than five. I don't think it's impossible, but it's harder. So like the paradigms that we have now are, I show you a picture of a pencil and I say pencil and the machine learns the name of some concrete physical object that we can put in a bitmap. And something like love or harm or pain or need or any of these kind of psychological terms, or justice, more abstract political terms, it's just much harder to push those into the paradigm that we know how to use now it suggests to me we actually need different paradigms for some aspects of AI. And so the, uh, going back to the Scott Alexander Slate Star Codex thing, the other debate that we were having, aside from like how much progress are we making now and so forth, was really like, do we need to change what we're doing or not? And ultimately, he offered me not quite a bet, but a prediction. He said that he thought there was a 60%, no, a 40% chance that we could get to real general artificial intelligence just by using the tools we have now, more data and so forth. I wrote a lengthy reply called Paradigm Shift or something like that, where I said, you know, I thought it was more like an 80% chance, which may not sound so different, 40 versus 80, but I walked through why I think the differences are and why I think it's actually really important that we as a research community consider paradigm shifts, why I think we probably won't get there just by adding more data and we do need something substantial. But the data is important. There is a sense that as we can join these data sets together, we could potentially solve bigger, bigger problems. It's like we have access to a very, very small amount of data. I think data is critical. I think it's really interesting that human children become more sophisticated understanders of the world than any computer is now, even with a lot less data. I think ultimately you want to take advantage of whatever data you've got. 
But if it's a small amount of data, you still want to be able to do something with it. I think you know that I built a machine learning company that I sold to Uber. And when I sold it, I had a conversation with Travis, who was still CEO at that point. And I was explaining what my company did, which is we work with small amounts of data. And he said, oh, I get it, the data frontier problem. And he gave an example, which was he knew how to put the right amount of cars in the right place at, let's say, 11 o'clock on a Thursday night, because he had plenty of data around that. But there just weren't enough cars at, let's say, three in the morning for his techniques that he already had to give a reliable answer. So even Travis, who had more data than anybody ever had on anything at that point, still ran into like, if you break things down into smaller subcategories, the tenderloin at 3 a.m. on a Thursday, there's not enough data there, even when you're accumulating massive amounts of data. So if you're Google, you have enough data for most things, but even Google actually has this problem. Like jet on a runway, maybe Tesla just had zero cases in that. So you need to solve that in a different way by having a general understanding of what an airplane is, what a large physical object is, rather than doing it by memorizing this specific case and looking for a lot of similar cases. So you don't want to throw away the data that you do have. It's often extremely useful, but you also need some paradigms that are a little bit less data-driven than I think the ones we have now. Yeah. All right, cool. This has been amazing. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? How about trust your instincts? It's a piece of conventional wisdom. And it's sometimes true. There was a kind of Malcolm Gladwell part of the story for a while about experts don't know anything or they do it in a blink. And it's not really true. And in fact, one of the most important things that scientists know is that for almost any piece of data, you will have your own theory and it will seem to fit your own theory. But if you think about it carefully from someone else's perspective, you'll realize it could be explained in a different way. And so if you trust your instincts too much, you become too in love with your own ideas. There's an old saying about you know falling in love with your own press clippings. And it's, it's a version of that. The psychological phenomena, there are two. One's called confirmation bias. So you have a theory, you notice other data for it. And the other one's called motivated reasoning. So you come up with reasons so you can keep believing what you're believing. So you don't have to believe that you've made a mistake. I'm for gun control or something. I see an article. I could justify anything or put a reasoning behind anything. Yeah. Or against it or whatever else. Yeah. The point is, whichever side you're on, on any hot button issue like that, or even smaller things, I'll give you a much smaller one, which is like, who did the more dishes? If you live in a house with, let's say, two adults that maybe married or whatever they are, I guarantee you that both people will think that they did more than whatever their fair share is. And if you add up, you say, give it to me in percentage score. Oh, add up to like 130, 140 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do it in a group house, you know, like I lived in graduate school, like five of us is going to add up to like 270. So there's all these kind of biases and stuff like that. Is if you trust your own instincts, you're like, I know what that call was. I mean, he was out. I mean, who are we kidding? That guy was right. Not, like, I wasn't out. Who are you kidding? There's value in calibrating your own instincts, but there's also value in thinking about alternative hypotheses. And, you know, maybe the other person's right. And that can be on a scientific matter. It can be on the dishes. It can be on your, you know, on the calls in your sports game. We got all this polarization in the world because we're naturally inclined to believe that we are correct and to not take the other guy's view seriously. All right, this is amazing. I, I follow you at Gary Marcus on Twitter. Is that the best place for our audience to engage with you? I would say that. And now I have this thing, GaryMarcus.substack.com, where I've been 
GaryMarcus.substack.com. Yeah, which I also like. So yeah. All right. This is amazing. Well, thank you very much, Gary. Really appreciate uh, you joining us at World of Death. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.